welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. It's the podcast that helps you translate Donald Trump. Joining me today is Brett Baer, the host of Special Report with Brett Baer on the Fox News Channel. We're going to talk about his new book, Three Days in Moscow, Ronald Reagan and the Fall of the Soviet Empire. We'll also speak with Brian Kennedy, the president of the American Strategy Group. He's going to share his insights on the right and wrong way to view missile defense. We'll also talk about the off and on again talks with North Korea. Finally, but not last, never last, always first, my wife, Elaine Bennett, will join me. She's the founder and president of the Best Friends Foundation. We'll get her original and unique thoughts on the recent school shootings, and she'll share her perspective on ways to keep our students safe that you probably haven't thought about. But first, a few things I'd like to discuss. Well, here we are. Um... The day after Roseanne. I say that because I was traveling. I was on the West Coast yesterday. Flew back uh, to the East Coast today. And uh, the news, breaking news on all channels was Roseanne, Roseanne, Roseanne. Right. And, uh, man, this kind of stuff, you know, is just high on the antennae of the media, if not the American people. Mm -hmm. She said a dreadful and stupid and horrid thing uh, about Valerie Jarrett. I'm no fan of Valerie Jarrett, but that's no reason to totally dehumanize her uh, and use these horrible uh, terms. Uh, And um, now Roseanne is trying to blame it on Ambien and so on, so on. That is lame. Uh, It's in her head. It came out. It's not the first time Roseanne has done this. The show is canceled. Boom. Boy, it's quick. The guillotine does go quick on this. Very quick. In the media. In the media. No question about it. So she blames Ambien, but there's no question they did the right thing. They they dropped her. They dropped the show. Uh, They were taking a risk, ABC, and putting her on anyway. Absolutely. It turned out to be a very successful show and a good show, as I understand. I never saw a full full installment. You see any of them? Yeah. So so Sierra, my wife, is a huge fan of Roseanne. Well, was. uh, was of the show of the show okay and so when the when uh, the reboot was coming up it, the whole house is on shutdown we got to watch it and it was a funny show it was a good show i thought okay. i mean it touched a lot of issues and topics it was a good show absolutely Correct. sierra not a fan anymore no okay that's it, that's it. <laughs> closing the door on roseanne yeah, yeah, yeah okay. she pretty okay. much closed the door. and by the way she, uh, roseanne had a show i believe in maryland at the uh, mgm grand down at the uh, national harbor in fort washington oh, yeah, yeah yeah and they canceled it they canceled it. i think it was later this year too. oh yeah no she's done she's yeah. done i don't think they're saying maybe someone will pick her up and of course a lot of the media is saying fox will pick her up because they don't care about this stuff i don't think fox will pick her up no right. they've had their own troubles but i don't think they have any interest in that um now she blamed ambien but what, what interests me is uh again the case against her is open and shut is how quickly people started to blame trump yeah. You know, she's a racist, he's a racist. And and I watched CNN just rolling these clips of Trump praising her uh, show. Right. Show. Mm-hmm. Not her tweets. Her she said. show. <laughs> but, of course, they didn't make that distinction so clearly right. uh, on, on CNN. Uh, now, I watched a little panel discussion uh, late last night when I got in off the plane, just couldn't sleep. And uh, Charles Blow, I guess he's a New York Times editorial writer, was saying, well, you know, they're all the same. They're speaking to the same audience. And she's echoing sentiments that Trump believes he's a white supremacist and Trump's audience. You know, no, no evidence for that. Uh, Rich Lowry from National Review said Trump was praising her show, not her tweet. Let's be clear on that. And this is not Trump's doing. Um, and, uh, but, but boy, I, you know, any opportunity to get after Trump, you know, I do think, 
you know, there are certain absolute no-nos, and she, right. oh, she, committed, she committed She committed yeah. one of them. Mm-hmm. But I was thinking about a recent parallel, but it's not really quite a, a good parallel, as obnoxious as it was, that comedian at the White House Correspondents' Dinner who took, took after uh, Sanders. Right. Press Secretary Sarah Sanders. And that was mean and personal, but it wasn't racist. Right. Uh, and, you know, that's kind of category double X, X, X. You just don't go there. You right. just don't yeah. do that. And, um, you know, that's fine um, that, uh, that that we have that prohibition. But then to try to link Trump to it is um, it's, it's not fair. It's wrong. And, uh, you know, he's no more responsible than Ambien is. So I, I guess she's done. I, d- I don't know. But I, I was watching this guy, Michael Smirkonish, Philadelphia. He's He says he's right down the middle. I, I think he's more left than down the middle, but he is more fair-minded. He said, on the racism scale, I give it a nine, nine and a half. I don't know what a, I don't know what a ten would be if that's uh, not only a nine. He said, but but he was making another point. He said, on the stupidity scale, I give it a ten plus. Right. Just yeah. really so stupid. Mm-hmm. Other comments uh, of interest uh, today, and I still need to digest this, Trey Gowdy was on, and he was saying, having access to some of the papers at the FBI, uh, the FBI was uh, right to pursue leads here, uh, which suggested that Russia was trying to influence the election and maybe partly through the um, Trump campaign. However, he also said uh, they were not after Trump, and they're not after Trump now. Now, that can change as they turn up evidence, but he said but this was not an investigation in Trump. Uh, you get some real disagreement from that on our side, the conservative side. But, you know, Gaddy's worth, Gaddy's worth listening to. We'll see. We'll see how this thing unravels. I mean, he, he is, he is right to say that, um, you know, the FBI should follow a lead if it gets a lead, truly gets a lead, a reliable lead. Right. And that's, uh, in question here with the dossier and all that. Um, about, you know, interference with an American election. But a couple things. One, it seems to me FBI people were overstepping all the time. Otherwise, Peter Strzok and Lisa Page wouldn't have been fired. McCabe, uh, I, I don't know what he was fired for, maybe related to the Hillary thing. Uh, that's one thing. And then also, if you think the Russians are trying to interfere and in a campaign, I think you inform the campaign. Um, I think you should inform the campaign. I'd love reaction to this from listeners. It would be great. The other thing is, um, we'll see what happens with the Inspector General's report, which I think is coming out in a few days. Uh, so we'll, we'll get some more light on that. But the other thing Gowdy points out, and he's absolutely right about that, and I was very taken with this comment when the president made it. Uh, and this was, I think, according to the Comey notes, and the president has never denied it. The president said, look, hey, he told the, uh, Comey as head of the FBI then, if there were people in my campaign who were doing some wrong things, including with the Russians, I want to know about it. Right. I want to know about it. Remember that? Mm-hmm. And that's right. So he said the president was in the right frame of mind on that. He, he didn't really condemn uh, anybody for saying spies and informants. He just said uh, the FBI was right to pursue the lead. So uh, we'll see where this goes. Uh, this will be developing over the next uh, over the next couple of days. Just uh, an article I read I wanted to mention. Um, what did I do with it? I think so. Here it is. Yeah. And, uh, Claude, you were kind enough to print it for me. Marijuana, Big Tobacco 2.0. This is a predatory industry uh, at war with America's general welfare. It's by a guy named, hang on one second, J.J. McCullough in National Review, May 29. Um, The point is, he says, uh, we've just finished this years-long campaign against Big Tobacco. Now what are we going to do? 
uh, allow big marijuana. He talks about the billions of dollars being invested in companies buying up land and developing it and marijuana, you know, uh, commissaries and, uh, and stores opening everywhere. Uh, are we just going to repeat what we did with big tobacco? Now, having brought big tobacco to heel, do we now just let big marijuana flourish? I say, no, Lord, no. Uh, it's harmful. You know, you burn leaves and inhale them. First of all, it should be obvious to anybody, you know, who's not a witch doctor. Right. It's you know, not healthy. You know, right. It's not going to be good for you to inhale, you know, the burn leaves. Um, but also we know from the research, most people start marijuana when they're young and it hurts focus, memory and attention. Mm. That's all you need to know. There's a whole lot more to know, but that's all you need to know to be against it. But um, I note the article. Uh, we may have from Mr. McCullough on because sure. it's a very interesting notion. But he said, as this is a phrase I remember from Tom Wolfe, the recently deceased Tom Wolfe, great relearning. We always need to engage in a great relearning. Right now, our biggest problem is uh, we have forgotten what we once knew. And now we have to engage in relearning. We, we, we learned it about tobacco, and now we have to relearn it about marijuana, which is another kind of inhaled substance, which is uh, in many ways worse, worse than tobacco. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. All right, let's get started with Brett Baer, the host of Special Report with Brett Baer on Fox News Channel and author of the new book, Three Days in Moscow, Ronald Reagan and the Fall of the Soviet Empire. Brett, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Bill. Number one in the Washington Post. Nicest thing Washington Post ever said about you? <laughs> Maybe so. I'll take it. And Number five in the New York Times. I think, uh, you know, I like the Post better. <laughs> okay. Good enough. Good <laughs> enough. Listen, congratulations on the book, Three Days in Moscow. It's a really good book. You know I read it, and, and I was delighted to blurb it, and it's a very interesting and important contribution, so good for you. Thank D- you. Dig it in. For those who haven't read the book but are about to once this interview's over, um, what were the three days in Moscow? When were they and what were they? So May 31st, 1988, is this speech Reagan delivers to Moscow State University students uh, in the heart of communism, obviously. It is the fourth summit between Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev. Um, obviously, it goes Geneva, Reykjavik. Washington and Moscow. And I look at those three days of that summit and that speech that was largely overlooked at the time uh, and use that to jump back and look at Reagan's life and how he gets up to that moment. Now, I'm not saying in the book that it's the seminal moment and the moment in which the Cold War ends and, and the wall falls, but it is the culmination of Reagan's kind of trajectory of fighting communism all through his life, all the way back from when he was president of the Screen Actors Guild in Hollywood. Okay, so it's not to diminish the significance of other events, uh, some of which you've cited, and other factors, but it's to take it as a kind of culmination and summation. Yeah, and just the speech itself is pretty remarkable if you look at it. I mean, it's he's speaking in the heart of Moscow at, to young Soviet college students under a bust of Vladimir Lenin next to a mural of the revolution. Uh, and by the way, just a aside, Josh Gilder, the, the speechwriter sure. of that speech, goes there two hours before the event and to s- scope out the site. 
and is stark white when he sees the bust and the mural and he calls Marlon Fitzwater and says you're not going to believe this and he describes the scene and they both start freaking out and they say to the organizer on the ground is there any chance you could cover this or move this and the guy says niet and um and Wait a minute. They, Why were they surprised? Would they expect George Washington, the American? Flag? No, no. I just they didn't expect the image to be Three, that stark. That stark, Lenin. right? That yeah. setting, yeah, yeah. Clowning okay. Lenin. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Then they made it better to, for Reagan, though, didn't it? Exactly. So they come to the moment where they say, "You know what? Reagan would love this," and they write it into the speech. And yeah. um, good. And it, it, it really, I think, if you Google it and you watch it on YouTube, it's as relevant today as it was back then, and it'll give you goosebumps. I mean, I'm a history nerd, but I, I, I really, really was struck by it. I'll, uh, I will watch it. I hadn't watched it uh, in a while, but I will watch it. What was the reaction of the audience, the students? Um, they were spellbound, really. And uh, yeah, I tried desperately to reach those somebody in that crowd, and I worked with a Russian researcher, and we just couldn't track them down in time. But um, we have the transcripts of the Q&A that he does with students right after the speech, and it was impromptu Q&A. It was not like you write down the question and this is what's going to happen. Um, this was impromptu from students in Moscow in a place that uh, Reagan called the evil empire, you know, just months uh-huh. before. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's let's go through, because I, I have a little story to tell you. I don't know if I've ever told you this, but when the wall came down and we, you know, celebrated, uh, I went around this town. I know a lot of people in this town. Uh, reasonably well, not because of uh, my importance, which is uh, not 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 anything to talk about, only because I've been here forever. Okay, so <laughs> I've, I've, I've met them all, you know. Uh, and I I asked a lot of people, well-informed people, give me the one factor that um, that made us win uh, uh, Reagan against Gorbachev, the U.S. And Soviet Union. I said, just keep it to one, the most important. I know there are a lot of factors. Okay, I'm going to throw these out at you, and I want you to answer them, if you will, Brett, in the context yeah. of, 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 of the book, Three Days in Moscow. Sure. Uh, first answer I got was Stinger missiles, using mm-hmm. Stinger missiles in Afghanistan. Yeah, so, I, I mean, obviously a major uh, point in, in the war in Afghanistan uh, turned the tide there, but probably wasn't the biggest factor uh, you'll probably go down this list, but when I talked to former Secretary Schultz, uh-huh. who, by the way, at 97, can remember meetings like they were yesterday, like down to what they were eating and the color of the napkins, uh, and I had a great interview with him. You know, his answer is the deployment of, of missiles to Eastern Europe, and um, when the Soviet Union moves them, and the, then the U.S. moves them, and that moment changed the dynamic of the pushback. Okay. I mean, that was his, okay. his thought. The person who said that, and you'll, you'll know the name, but I, I did this in confidence, so I won't repeat, said, now I immediately want to add Stinger missiles plus the Russian body bags coming home in great numbers from Afghanistan. I mean, we need to remind the audience, this is not the war we were involved in in Afghanistan, but this was the, the Soviets. But the body bags starting to come home, registered with Gorbachev and the Russian people. Big time. I mean, look at that movie, Charlie Wilson's War. Right, um, right. I think it really looks, it really depicts the changing tide and how it changed the, the even the mood inside the Soviet Union about what was happening. All right. The guy we just mentioned, uh, the, the, one of the early people I talked to said, how do we win? Gorbachev. 
Gorbachev was the key. You couldn't have done this with the other guys. Well, 100 percent. And that's in the book. Uh, Margaret Thatcher calls Reagan and says, this is a guy that you can do business with. And, um, and, you know, Reagan didn't want to negotiate with the old Soviet apparatchik leaders and drop off and Trinanko. He didn't want to do it because he didn't think uh, they were up to the the level. Uh, When you get to Gorbachev, uh, because Reagan has said so many forceful things, uh, he's unable to at least give it a try and and finds it could be successful. Brett Baer, was was Gorbachev a communist ideologue and a pragmatist? How would you how would you define him, or a pragmatist and not a communist ideologue? Yeah, I think he is more pragmatist and, you know, a, a, a dash of communist ideologue. I, I think the Communist Party had had a problem with Gorbachev in some ways that he dealt with. Uh, you know, he had perestroika and glasnost, and he was trying to change um, the structure of the Soviet Union to be more forward-leaning and maybe more uh, susceptible and, and appreciative of capitalist moves, which was a, a, a anathema to uh, some of the old-school communists. Did they know what they were doing when um, he was appointed, named Gorbachev? Did they did they know did they know they were getting a pragmatist? Was this some kind I, of shift? I don't think Politburo? so. Okay. I mean, I, that's my guess. Just looking at the the history and looking at the the folks talking, they fully appreciated what what they were getting. I mean, I don't think this is. You know, a revelation like David Souter on the Supreme Court. Yeah. Turns out to be somebody <laughs> oh, totally different. But hit, hit me hard um, on that one. I remember that. Yeah. One. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I do think um, that that Gorbachev surprised a lot of folks inside the um, inside the party. Okay, they thought he was more more of a hardliner, right? At least at the beginning, and yeah. um, and then suddenly he kind of evolves as these summits evolve. Right. Uh, let's go to the. Um, the one that I think most most Americans say, you know, what brought down the the wall? Well, it was the Berlin Wall speech. Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall. What was the date of that compared to the this, the three days in Russia, in Moscow? Uh, June twelfth, nineteen eighty seven. Okay. And uh, there was a fight, as I write in the book, in the inside the White House and at the State Department. Oh yeah. About about using that phrase. I remember. Uh, and it was there were a lot of folks who were saying. It's too over the top. It's too inflammatory. It'll cut off negotiations. You can't do it. I think, and including George Schultz, I think. And and Schultz was one of them. Yeah. Did he admit that? He did. Okay. He did. Okay. And um, David Gergen, there are others inside yeah, yeah, the White yeah. House. Um, did they keep taking Reagan, it out and he kept putting it back in? Is that true? Six times. <laughs> six times they took it out. They get and and yeah. he, uh, on the way to the speech turns to an aide in the limo and says, well, the guys at State are going to kill me, but I'm putting it back in. There you go. It's the right thing to do. Now, was That's that, my best Reagan. Okay. That's, that's pretty, <laughs> well, yeah, I practiced it, well, too, because I, yeah. I got some stories I'll share with you sometime. I'm sure. Uh, uh, that, though, was uh, later, right, than, than Moscow. So, no, it's before. So it's a year. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, June 12th, 1987. So then May 31st, 1988 is Moscow. Moscow. Okay. That was a stage setter. That wasn't the culmination. Exactly. So that actually stirs, you know, the the next get-together, which ends up being Washington. 
and then uh, the iconic moment where Gorbachev gets out of his limo on the way to the White House right. on Connecticut Avenue and kind of works the crowd like it's the Iowa caucuses. Yeah, I and. And people are coming out at lunchtime and cheering them on, and um, and that sets the table for what they get done in Washington, which is actually signing the treaty, and then uh, one final summit in Moscow. And Reagan and Nancy have their own moment in the Arbat in um, in Moscow, where people crowd the streets, and uh, it's kind of a tit for tat. He has his own uh, crowd pleasing moment in front of the cameras. It's three days in Moscow, uh, Ronald Reagan and the fall of the Soviet Empire. Brett Baer is the author and our guest. Just just a couple more things. Uh, I read Ken Edelman's book, I know you have, about yeah. Reykjavik and, 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 and other works, too. Reykjavik was important, wasn't it? And when was that? How does that fit in to uh, your narrative? I know so you deal with it in the book extensively, I know. I do, yeah. So it was the second summit. It was after Geneva and then Reykjavik uh, two years uh, before um, Moscow. But uh, it is the summit that it's really the loggerhead moment. They make the most progress in Reykjavik. But because of the Strategic Defense Initiative, SDI, uh, commonly known as Star Wars back here, right. um, which, you know, as you know, was characterized here in the media as pie in the sky, kind of like an asteroids video game that nobody knew or thought was going to come to pass, the Soviets thought it was very real and, and was the real sticking point in those negotiations. Uh, to the point where they were walking away from the table, and they had come a long way, uh, and they just split on SDI. And and Reagan says, you know, how can you leave? We've we've come right. so far. Right. And Gorbachev says, Mr. President, you just don't want a deal. What could I have done differently? And Reagan turns to him and says. You could have said yes. Yeah. And that's the end of Reykjavik. Two things about this I'm curious because I, 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 what you found in your research. Is it true that, um, I think Edelman makes a point of this, that they had, the Russians, the Soviets, had a more exaggerated view, had an exaggerated view of SDI. They thought it was much further along than it actually was. Um, they thought we were on the verge of it and it was pretty much perfectly developed when actually it was a pretty small nascent operation at the time yeah no that is true and they had a much grander you know thought about where it was in its production right, right. um and also what it was meant to do i mean they had a, a perception that it was not a defensive weapon it was in essentially in their mind an offensive weapon uh -huh. that they were going to have to continue to spend to try to keep up with that's that was the other point I wanted to make about spending. Uh, again, one of the people I talked to said Gorbachev's pragmatist looked at the situation, realized because this was you know a matter either implicit or explicit in their discussions, we were just going to outspend them. We're the arsenal of democracy, and we got a bank account that they don't have. Yeah, and I think that that is a big factor. I mean, yeah. the buildup of the U.S. military. Um, in fact, Reagan says that to him directly. Okay. You know, we we will all we okay. will beat you because we will all outspend you. Yeah. 
And, you know, that was some of the the firm language that he used in some of those summits. The transcripts are fascinating. I mean, there were moments where they are just really connecting and telling jokes and and identifying as, as fathers and humans. Um, and then there are moments where they are at each other's throats. Uh, it's quite something. And, and the last question about Reykjavik. I heard not directly from Charlie Wick, but from a close friend of Charlie Wick, that when he got on the plane with Reagan coming back from Reykjavik, Reagan was a little, still a little down, and Charlie yeah. said, don't be down, today you won the Cold War. Had you heard that story? I did. In fact, some a little version of that is in there. And Reagan gets out of you know the little um, area and walks back <clears throat> to the staff and, and finally says, you know what, I did the right thing. And um, right. that conversation happens at that moment. Yeah, interesting. Very, very interesting. Okay, we just got. You're a busy, one of the busiest guys in the world. We just got a couple minutes. Uh, I'm, I'm a former professor, as you know. Uh, I still, still want to be, I suppose, in some ways. You never, <laughs> never lose it. So, uh, student Brett Baer, compare and contrast. Uh, Ronald Reagan, Donald Trump, his approach to foreign policy. This is tricky for a historian, I know, because you, yeah. you never know what's going on in the present until you get, what, 50, 100 years down the road. Exactly. So, Much easier to report on history right. than it is to uh, right. day to day. But what do you I say? Say, what do you, you Go ahead. Yeah, you always say I always that. say I'm one, one tweet away from changing the entire show. So yeah. <laughs> um, we're drinking from a fire hose here. Isn't that unbelievable? It's just it really is. how, I mean, look, look what happened yesterday. I mean, the, the Roseanne thing. I mean, it just... A, a tweet, a single tweet, yeah. um, and that's the end of a career and a bunch of careers, I suppose. But but that we don't want we don't want to, we don't want to talk about that. Compare and contrast. What do you see? Yeah. What do you see in Trump? Uh, uh, All right. So here's the the compare. I think that both leaders, uh, when they get into office, are underestimated. Even though Reagan was right. uh, the governor of California, he was the actor who was just reading lines. And the perception in Washington is that he's this kind of pretty boy uh, who's not really uh, got it all. I mean, it's, it's kind of the media perception and and that he's just kind of reading from the script. The perception of Trump, a billionaire reality TV star who says or tweets something that makes Washington's heads explode every day, uh, that he's not up to the task and he's, he's, he's not up to it. Practically... Um, you know, he's moving the ball on a number of different issues. He's doing it in a very different way. The contrast is that they have very different personalities, very different ways to approach things. Reagan, on his Oval Office desk, had a, a sign that said, you can succeed at anything if you don't care who gets the credit. Mm-hmm. That sign is not on President Trump's <laughs> Oval Office desk. Um, Understatement of the yeah, so, so they they have different approaches. But I write in the book, in the last word, that, you know, in some of the biggest speeches that President Trump has delivered, Warsaw, Poland, in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, at the United Nations, the State of the Union, there are echoes of uh-huh. Ronald Reagan themes and phrases, um, and, and ones in, that you can see or hear uh, in, in Reagan speeches. And I think that those speechwriters hearken back to that. Uh, the question is, is we head to this perspective summit with North Korea, whether they're going to learn from the lessons of, you know, Schultz and others and, and frankly, Reagan, uh, to be able to get away from, get up from the table like they did in Reykjavik. Yeah. 
I also see as uh, you know, I was I was in that in that cabinet. By the way, you're, you're, I, I've watched your interviews with George Schultz, and I do admire him. But he's a he's a tough customer. I was yeah. <laughs> I, I was in the cabinet about nine months, and he came up to me after a cabinet meeting and said, "Are you Bennett?" Well, hell, I think he should have known by then, shouldn't he? I mean, I'm, I'm sitting there with a name tag, you know? But it was kind of like, you know, there's the high-level cabinet and then the kind of, you know, low-level cabinet. I said, I said yes, I'm the, I'm Bennett. I'm the secretary. Yeah, I said, yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, I don't know who you are or what you're about. Why don't you come over sometime? I'd like to get uh, the cut of your jib. So uh, I went over, and he just asked me a series of questions. thought I was taking an admissions test or something. Wait a minute. I'm already in the cabinet. But he he had that kind of, uh, you know, old, old school style and standards. And uh, it was very uh, it was very interesting. It was very uh, – I thought I'd made it, but I still had another step to aspire, which was to impress to impress George, uh, George Schultz. Uh, this is a, a great piece of work, uh, and you really know your stuff. Three Days in Moscow, Ronald Reagan, and the Fall of the Soviet Empire, Brett Baer. Okay, uh, we'll let you go. We know we, uh, we'll watch you tonight, and, uh, you know, keep your tweet alarm handy, I guess. Exactly. Still world. drinking from that fire hose. But, Bill, thanks for having me on. That was Brett Baer, the host of Special Report with Brett Baer on Fox News Channel and author of the new book, Three Days in Moscow, Ronald Reagan and the Fall of the Soviet Empire. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Okay, let's switch direction. Let's talk to Brian Kennedy, president of the American Strategy Group. I am a fellow of the American Strategy Group here in Washington. Brian, thank you for joining us today. Great to be with you, Bill. Thank you for the American Strategy Group for being its founder and president. I'm uh, proud to be a fellow. And uh, we talk about existential threats to the United States of America and to freedom. And today we want to talk about how we can defend uh, ourselves particularly um, something you had written really caught my eye, and I think the audience will be interested, the whole question of SDI. Let me just tell you, we just concluded an interview with Brett Baer on his book, Three Days in Moscow, and, uh, of course, conversations between Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev. There was a lot of discussion about uh, about SDI, as you, as you know. Let me run through a couple of things I said to Brett and get your take, because you are one of the three or four real experts on SDI uh, in, this, um, in this country. Um, first of all, uh, SDI was an important ingredient in this discussion. So it figured prominently in the minds of both people, but probably more in the minds of Gorbachev. Is that fair to say? Well, Brett's book is very good, but the whole idea that Gorbachev was somehow worried about SDI or that we were on the verge of SDI, I think may have been not quite accurate. Gorbachev knew, Soviet intelligence knew where we were when it came to our uh, technology and what we had built so far. The Soviets were even more intimate with what we were doing back then uh, than they are today with the so-called Russian collusion. Uh, Soviet intelligence knows a lot. They're not 10 feet tall, but uh, they knew what we were building and not building. Gorbachev worried, I think, the most that Reagan had established in the American mind that we ought to be defended from Soviet, now Russian, missiles. And that really was the great worry, that Reagan had established the moral position that we ought to build missile defenses, something we hadn't done before then. And You're yeah. saying not so much that he thought a program which was in its early stages was much further along. That wasn't the, uh, the difference or worry so much as that Reagan had made a commitment, he had a conviction 
that he, by God, he was going to defend the United States against Soviet missiles. Right, and he was going to establish that in the mind of the American people. Okay, okay. As something, as something that was absolutely necessary. Okay, okay, which, good. Which, of course, Kennedy didn't do, or Johnson, or Nixon, right? Nixon had a treaty banning missile defenses. Yep, yep. yep. Right, so I mean that... In the Carter, in the American mind, Reagan was changing our strategic position in a way that would strengthen the United States. That's the really interesting part of all this. They knew we we hadn't built one yet. They were trying to make a bet that if they started negotiating something, we would give it away. And Reagan wasn't willing to do that. Okay, because he was committed to it in his own mind and wanted Americans to be committed to it in their minds and to feel that they would be safe because of his efforts. Absolutely. Okay. And and by the way, the funny part of all that is that after Reagan said it, and with such conviction, even though we didn't build it about a decade after Reagan proposed it, or, you know, 10, 20 years after Reagan proposed it, uh, 60% of all Americans thought we already had one, and we don't have one. And that's the reason President Trump has to negotiate with Kim Jong-un over in Singapore right. over his nuclear weapons. All right. I want to get I want to get to that. But that what, what I just heard you say was that if Reagan didn't succeed and his successors didn't succeed in building SDI, he did succeed in getting into the minds of Americans that we had one. Well, because Americans thought if President Reagan thinks we need one and we need one, and we want to defend ourselves, that seems like common sense, and we can send a man to the moon. This seems a lot easier. Yeah, okay, I got you. And so so they just thought we would go and build one, having said we were going to build one. All right, before we get to Trump, give us a brief history, because you've been at this for a long time, of other presidents in SDI, and I don't want you to be uh, immodest here. I want you to talk about your conversation with one of the President Bushes. Go ahead. Yeah, well, the uh, the presidents have all been for it because it, Reagan did establish it as a necessary public policy or strategic goal. But Reagan really began a research project that was continued by George H.W. Bush. And George H.W. Bush, I think, was a believer in it, but didn't really set us on the path of getting it done in an expeditious way. And let me, let me say... That's really the key point here. John F. Kennedy said, we're going to send a man to the moon by the end of the decade. You put a date certain on it, and by God, American industry and American politicians gave them the resources to send a man to the moon. With missile defense, it's this goal that is out there so that Reagan does research, H.W. Bush does research, Bill Clinton is uh, not really for it and so slows it down and doesn't do much. Uh, Bill Clinton kills a very successful testing program where we proved we can do it in outer space. George W. Bush, you know, who I did meet in the White House and talked about this, uh, was also very committed to it. But my point to him was, if we, we, we were fighting a war in Iraq and Afghanistan. The next attack may be even more spectacular by our enemies. Why don't we build missile defense with the greatest possible haste? You have a window of opportunity to get this right. And he was for it, but he said, well, you know more about this than I do. And I told him there there are many people in, in the military who know much more about this than me. What it takes is the political commitment of the president. Well, he was fighting a war, and that was, that was time-consuming. Right. Obama was opposed to it. 
as as we often see, he told the Russian president Medvedev that tell Vladimir not to worry about missile defenses because he was going to essentially not do them. Can I can I interrupt and, and you ask you a question? Yeah, yeah during this yeah. period, so you know, slow start, stop, slow. Was there an office in the Pentagon or somewhere, a facility, developing it? Did it stop dead in its tracks with Obama, go slow during the other time, or has it just crept along? I mean, did did Obama put an end to it? He wasn't in favor of it. But is this thing, we're now talking 30 years, if I'm counting correctly, from when Reagan is talking about it with Gorbachev to now, right? That's 30 years. Late 80s? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. No, it, it, it's more like it's crept along. Okay. The uh, we, we, we built a land-based system back in the 90s uh, in Alaska with, you know, now a dozen or so interceptors up there that could stop a North Korean missile launched at Alaska. And they under, I mean, the crazy thing is they underinvested in everything. Whereas America can has the technology and the wealth to build a missile defense to defend the entire United States. We built a very limited missile defense just to stop the North Koreans situated in Alaska. And even on that, we underinvested in the program. How expensive expensive is it? The price of these things has gone way down. The, the, The New York Times ridiculed SDI originally as costing trillions of dollars, and they called wars, and it was going to be literally trillions of dollars. Now, today, we spend just under $10 billion a year on missile defense. You could field a robust base-based missile defense for probably $30 billion and maintenance of that. But then there's all sorts of things because technology has developed that you could do for a lot less, but that we simply choose not to do, and this is an important point here, we didn't do missile defense because we didn't want to build a missile defense that could stop the Russians or the Chinese. Why? Well, in the in the Clinton era, they established in the public mind of at least Washington, D.C., corrupt as that may be, that if you build missile defenses, that would be destabilizing. It's destabilizing because we would have missile defenses that could stop Russian and Chinese missiles and therefore, we could successfully engage in a nuclear war and win it. What's wrong with so, that? Well, to sensible people, that makes perfect sense. If I'm an American, why wouldn't you? That's what right, Reagan was exactly. getting me to believe, and I want to believe it. And Reagan thought nuclear war was horrible, and he simply wanted to stop the possibility of one. He said it was it was inherently more moral to defend yourself from an enemy than to retaliate and destroy an enemy. So if you can prevent war, why not do that? Sure. It makes perfect sense. But Clinton and all the bright boys in the Clinton administration thought, oh, no, if we build missile defenses, that will lead to a kind of strategic danger for the United States. There would be instability, and that instability could lead to war. And in their mind, to, to exaggerate just slightly, if the United States could win a war, the United States would engage in one, which is, of course, crazy. Crazy. But but instability, because we'd have it and they wouldn't, but what's to stop them from developing it? It's not that expensive. The Chinese can, I'm sure, find $10 billion here or there. Well, and here's the great fraud there. The Soviet Union had built their own missile defense already, a very crude missile defense using nuclear interceptors. But the CIA said in the just recently or not, you know, it declassified in the last decade reports 
that the uh, Soviets had built a system of about 8,000 interceptors around Moscow, which would protect about 75% of the Russian population to stop American ballistic missiles, because they believed missile defense was absolutely necessary. They, the Soviets, believed missile defense was necessary. So they built one in violation of the ABM Treaty. We're getting into a lot of history here, but the Russians themselves believe in missile defense. Okay. Okay. The Chinese today, the, the Chinese today are working on advanced forms of missile okay. defense. Okay. Okay. They're trying. They're they're positioning themselves to build the kind of arsenal it would take to win a war. Okay. The only people that are not is the United States. Yeah. All right. I was just going to ask you, where are we in relationship comparison? to the Soviet, the Russians, and now, as we call them, and the Chinese, um, and and what is the status of things in the Trump era? Well, Trump is a believer in missile defense, much to his credit. He understands, just as we were saying, the obvious point that you need both offenses and defenses. And so Trump is is hell-bent on getting it done. And now he's trying to get a defense department and a missile defense agency to match his enthusiasm. And because bureaucracies are slow to get right, uh, he, Trump, is still working on it, let's just say. And you could see you, you could see just getting the VA hospitals right has taken him yeah. a year and a half. And that's still, you know, and something very near and dear to his heart, veterans. Yeah. He, uh He's still getting that right. When you're talking about a multi-billion-dollar bureaucracy like the Missile Defense Agency or the Pentagon, these things do not move quickly. My argument would be he, Trump, like he, Reagan, or Bush, has a window of opportunity to get this right. You should be working literally around the clock to make sure we have missile defenses to stop not just North Korea or Iran, who threaten us on a near daily basis, but also the Russians and the Chinese, now you ins- because that, 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 that's the least you could do to defend your country. Yeah, you inserted, uh, or you said earlier, and I, I said, Let, we'll, we'll wait, we'll get to it. You said, if I heard you correctly, we have some missile defense, a little bit, uh, in Alaska, mostly about North Korea, but we don't have enough now to defend ourselves against uh, you tell me, North Korea, Iran, Russia, China, three out of four, four out of four, one out of four. W- what do we have now, and what's it capable of defending us against? Well, we yeah, that's a good question. We have a very, uh, as I say, underinvested system in Alaska and also some capabilities from ships to shoot a ballistic missile launched from the territory of North Korea. If North Korea put one of their ballistic missiles on board a ship and launched it, we would not be capable of stopping that ballistic missile. So we have limited capabilities. Just, just look at the numbers. If, if we have a dozen interceptors, maybe let's just say it's, it's maybe now even up to 16. If they launched 18, 19, 20 missiles at California, let's say, where I am, we wouldn't have enough interceptors to go after them. Not all of them have to have a nuclear warhead on them, of course. So you could overwhelm our very our very inefficient system today. Okay. And we made it. We, we, we underinvested for a reason. We didn't want to build the most effective missile defenses. We did that on purpose. Crazy. It wasn't that this is all we could do. We could do much more. We just didn't want to. We bought the destabilizing even, argument. 
Right, right. Okay. We did. I want you to make every point you can. We just we're running out of time. We got about three, four minutes. Uh, we just had a, a major increase that the president is bragging about in regard to defense spending. He said, "I'm making the military whole." Did that include missile defense? It did include more money for missile defenses. Okay. And as I say, he is committed to it. And in fact, there's a uh, new program that is still being literally discussed right now that would use, for instance, uh, interceptors based on drones, a remotely piloted aircraft. Or mm-hmm. Aircraft, you see these Raptors, <clears throat> and sure. you could have those. You could have those persistent, as they say off the coast of North Korea, and they could develop an interceptor to go on those, that would be extremely effective. Uh, The people at General Atomics, who I've been briefed by on this, think they could get this done in the next 12 months. It would cost, if you can believe it, $100 million, not billion, million dollars to field that system. In a way, it doesn't cost enough to get anybody's attention but at 40,000 feet off the coast of North Korea, you could make Kim Jong-un's nuclear arsenal, at least if it were launched from North Korea, completely irrelevant. Wow. If we had that already, if we had that already, Donald Trump wouldn't be going to Singapore. He wouldn't have to go to Singapore because we would have the missile defenses that could shoot down those North Korean missiles. I should add for, for the listeners, by the way, it's just an important point. The North Koreans have talked about using a nuclear weapon uh, as an EMP weapon to essentially destroy the electric infrastructure of the United States. EMP is Kim the electro, electromagnetic elect- pulse. Yes, an electromagnetic pulse that could literally destroy all the electronics of the United States. The electrical system of the United States could be destroyed. Kim Jong-un said last year, late last year, I think it was September, October, that that's what he was thinking about doing, if you can believe it. So that's his way of thinking about it. And a more worrisome thing is that there are two North Korean satellites that traverse the United States every 90 minutes over about the center of the country. If those had a nuclear warhead on them, pray they don't. But if they did, they could destroy the electric infrastructure of the United States. And in the course of things, we ought to shoot those down as well, as provocative as that might be, shooting down satellites. Suppose the president knows I, that. I, I would assume he does. Wait, I mean, knowing I mean, Donald look, Trump, look, look, look. knowing Donald Trump, he'd just give an order, wouldn't he? I mean, just let's get this thing ready. I would think so. Or he might ask them to find their own method of destroying them. Just, maybe again. that's what the, and maybe and maybe that's what the Singapore summit is all about. But look, this is like this is like anything in life. Either you're going to do it to win, or you're going to suffer the consequences. Yeah. Either we're serious about the defense of the United States, or we're simply going to be vulnerable and be at the mercies, the tender mercies of people like Kim Jong Un or the tyrants in Iran or in Russia or in China. You are. I think Donald Trump, Donald Trump believes that's silly. And he's trying to make sure the country knows that, too. You admire Donald Trump. You were an early supporter of him. You were a surrogate for him. You're in Washington a fair amount talking to people. Do you have a sense that you're getting through on this to Trump Trump people? Or are you bogged down in the swamp? Well, the swamp is ever-present. But I do think Trump is bringing a new way of thinking to Washington and is trying to break through the bureaucracy. And so far, we've had 
a lot of re- receptivity to all these things. It's funny, when you talk to a congressman, they all think that there are grown-ups in the Pentagon who are making sure these things are getting done right away, when in fact it's a Pentagon that's been shaped by fighting wars in deserts and in mountains and hasn't really been thinking about these big strategic issues for some time. And even General Mattis, uh, Secretary Mattis, has said that he's going to change that focus back to our our bigger strategic challenges like Russia and China. Now he just needs the military, including missile defense, to match that. Okay. And so hopefully hopefully he brings the same kind of seriousness that Trump has that we're talking about with people in Washington with the idea there's a window of opportunity. If the Democrats take power in, in, in November, let's just say, or if they win in November, the Democrats will not originate a lot of spending when it comes to these key issues. They did not, and they won't. I got it. All right, we're going to get off the uh, the line here, so you can call. Is it General Atomics? Is that what you called it? Uh, well, General Atomics is one of one of the designers of right. missile defense so, systems. So you can talk to General Atomics, to the Pentagon, to to General Mattis, maybe the president. We appreciate your advocacy for this and um, and your wisdom on it. Thank you, Brian Kennedy. Thank you, Bill. Great to be with you. Thanks, by the way, for the sponsorship, I should say out loud to the audience, of the American Strategy Group of these sessions. It's been been really a highlight of the podcast. We appreciate it. Thank you, Bill. That's Brian Kennedy, president of the American Strategy Group. I'm a fellow of the American Strategy Group here in Washington. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Joining us now, Elaine Bennett. I know her well. She's my wife. 36 years, she celebrated yesterday. She is the founder and president of the Best Friends Foundation. Hi, Elaine. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you this morning? Good, good. Having a good show. Uh, A lot of foreign policy, missile defense, Soviets, etc. But let's go home. Let's take a look at the home front. And boy, the country's rattled, shaken, school shootings. But something interesting happened. Maybe a bright spot. Uh, You wrote a piece in LifeZet. I did. Which is a website uh, created by Laura Ingram. It's about school shootings, which which you have a unique and interesting perspective. But you opened it by praising the First Lady, Melania Trump. Yes. How come? Because she deserves praise. She stepped out and stepped up against bullying, against taking a stand, against encouraging people. And I, as a member of the school community, uh, truly appreciated it because not enough is being done. Melania is seeing that. I think she's seen that with her own son who has been cyber-bullied, and and she has been cyber-bullied. And it's a a painful process, and it's a process that can end. It can end when we educate students and teachers through programs that can make a difference. I I may have missed it, but it did not seem to me that she got an overwhelming round of applause from the media or the public. She did not, and that's not right. Yeah. She deserved it. It's a, a cause that deserves it, uh, and no matter what side of the aisle you sit on, no matter what your political affiliations are, there has to be an understanding that, that we've got to come together for our children. And it's a, frankly sad to me that the media has not recognized this in the way they should. Melania Trump talks about bullying. The uh, country is shaken by these school shootings. You see a connection in your article, which I thought, and I, you know, I try to be subje- uh, objective. I'm pretty subjective when it comes to you, pretty partial to you. 
Yes, lots you of, are. For lots of reasons for 36 years. And I appreciate but, those but, reasons. But um, it seemed to me you were onto something that people have not talked about so much. Talk about guns, talk about armed guards, talk about uh, metal detectors. But you talk about something else that makes the school the center of attention and we ought to give it that attention in a particular way. Tell us what we're missing in this debate that needs more emphasis. Well, I think if we look at the characteristics of the school shooters and we go back through, there there were red flags, there were signs, there were signs and certainly even as early as middle school. If there are signs of bullying, aggressive behavior, or if this student was bullied himself, there tends to be a deep-seated rage that can develop, a sense that my self-worth is is diminished and why, and a growing hatred of those around him. I I could say him or her, but so far there haven't been female shooters. And I don't think that has been given the attention it, it should be given. And, I, and there are studies that show, in fact, CDC actually came out with one, and I'm, not, I'm surprised it hasn't been cited, that uh, school-based programs can reduce aggression, can, including bullying, that's associated with school violence. Now, what else do we need to know, and why don't we have more of them? And Melania Trump is on the right track. Tell us about schools and kids. Why do they do this in schools as opposed to malls or huge concerts or hockey games? Or uh... that's, a, that's a very good question, and it's one I've given quite a bit of thought to. I think it's because school is the source of their pain. School is the source of their sense of worthlessness and hopelessness. I think hopelessness is a, a major factor here. The shooters see no hope. No hope that anything is going to change. But but in general, and, let me interrupt you. I mean, school is a place where it can be good, too, right? You can get your self-worth and high self-esteem and exactly, high self-respect. Exactly. Because you're a star or you're, you're whatever. Adolescence, absolutely. That's It's where their sense of self-worth is either forged uh, or fractured. And in the case of these shooters, it's, it's, it's fractured and destroyed to the point that they've become sociopaths. And... I think a lot of this is preventable. Back to the school issue. School is a place where the peers come together and and your self-worth is certainly developed within that that sphere. What your peers think of you is who you think you are. You know, you can even have supportive That's parents. That's an interesting question. If you have a high come to school with a high degree of self-worth from your home, your family, mm-hmm. but your peers think you're a nobody or a nerd or a jerk or whatever you're likely to internalize it. That's the power of the peer pressure that's exercised at school. Is that right? Exactly. Peer pressure is incredibly powerful. Study after study has shown that. And as you point out, you can have supportive parents and go to school and be treated badly or be treated in an aggressive way or in a demeaning way, and it can eat away at your own sense of self. And I think that's what's happened. I think in the shooter in in Parkland, I know that's what happened to develop this incredible rage. I think his mother tried. I think he developed anger that grew. We knew from reports from the students that he was mercilessly bullied in uh, middle school as well as high school. 
Okay. And similar situation in Santa Fe, not bullied, I don't think, but other other problems. Well, right? that's an interesting situation. That's an intact family. And that shooter apparently uh, was publicly rejected by a girl he desired. And again, the facts need to come out exactly what Sure. What happened there? Sure. But it appears as if it was such a horrible experience for him. All he could think about was revenge and selective revenge. As is, you know, he said, "I didn't shoot any of the students I liked." Right. So that's an interesting situation. I want I want to ask you what to do, but f- but first I want to talk about an obstacle. I remember someone said, "You know, if you could take uh, take a magic pill and go back at age sixty and relive your life, would you do it?" Uh, the person said, any catches? Yeah, you got to relive your teenage years. Oh, nope, never mind. Thank you. They're too hard. They're too difficult. With this with this chaos and tumult that are the teenage years, all this stuff going on, I used to say middle schools vibrate. I'm surprised they don't come off the ground. How can you get through it? I mean, how this, these currents and cross-currents are going on all the time. So how are you able to sort it out and identify if you, if you want to talk about the program you're doing here and have the audience reflect upon whether that sort of thing might be useful in a lot of places to prevent uh, just what we've seen. Well, when you were Secretary of Education, you had a phrase that stuck in my mind because I'm in and out of a lot of schools. And you used the phrase, the ethos of a school. And one can step into a school as a parent, a teacher, a program provider, and and get a pretty good sense of the ethos of a school almost within the first half hour. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And too many schools are not paying attention to that. They're not seeing or judging and, and trying to remediate when there is a growing negative culture in the school. And when we do our evaluations in our programs called Stop the Silence, Prevent the Violence, we ask the students, and the high school students especially, does your school have a positive culture? The high school students understand this. Is your school positive? And interestingly, we have one high school, as many as 60% of the students said, no, no, we don't have a positive school culture. Things don't seem to be on the right track. Uh, there's not respect for authority, and there's not respect for each other. Okay. In fact, when we ask the five issues that they think are most important, and we give them lots of options like drug abuse, uh, bullying, and violence, interestingly, the number one is lack of respect among peers. Interesting. For each other. Interesting. It is interesting. It's not what we expected to see. And then actually number two is lack of respect for authority figures. They know they don't respect their authority figures. I'm just curious if you think, I just want to insert a question here. I want you to stay with this point. But do you think the lack of respect for peers, part of this is the effect of social media, the cheapening of the currency? Just there's so much stuff out there and you see your you know, your classmates and, and your friends and so many guys, there's no privacy. There's no, you know, I don't know if you let it all hang out. Maybe you're not going to have respect for people. I think it's just undeniable that social media has had a tremendous effect. Deleterious in that way. Absolutely. We know the shooters posted on social media. We know they posted things that should give rise to serious concerns, mutilation of animals, Pictures of guns, uh, phrases on T-shirts, born to kill. 
how do we get to that? And as adults, we're shut out. It's got to be peers themselves have got to, as we say, take a stand. Describe your, your program. I, I've, I've witnessed it, but for the audience, give a, give a brief description of your program. What's it called? Well, we have three levels. We have our elementary school level where we have a program called Kindness is Cooler. And then our middle school level is It's Not Cool to Be Mean, if you know what I mean. And then the high school level is actually taking a stand, stand up and be seen, that violence and bullying have no place in society. It's destructive. It's not only just des- it's destructive, of course, to the victim, incredibly destructive. We know that. We know what, what happens to victims of bullying. They become more and more diminished in their own self-worth. Their grades fail. There are studies that show this. But there's uh, an impact on the truly on the rest of their lives. Now, that's the victim. We also know there's an impact on the perpetrator, And there's a study that was uh, from the journal, the Archives for Pediatric Medicine, showing that, and again, it's primarily males who bully in junior high, middle school, high school, tend to be abusers of their intimate partners later. Now, that's something that I have said to the Me Too crowd. Why don't you address that? Why aren't you standing up and supporting our first lady who's trying to do something? So it seems to me, and one of the things I noticed in your program, connect two points. Kids often, when this happens after the fact, say, that's no surprise, right? Parkland, elsewhere. So if they have some sense that something's going wrong, they need to be able to tell somebody, right? Right. See something, say something, as we say in the terrorist business. Um, I have a friend in a state legislature who introduced a bill statewide for every district to have hotline. You know, you see somebody's behavior or their attitude that worries you, pick up the phone. You'll talk to somebody. Are we missing uh, an opportunity, a place, um, a device, a means for kids to express their worry and anxiety about a classmate uh, to adults who might be able to do something? Yes, Is this part of the answer? We are missing that. There's been the growing code of silence, and this code of silence uh, has developed probably over the years. It's been there traditionally with adolescents. They all bond together, and nobody talks. Nobody wants to tell any uh, an adult or a teacher. Right. I think Jack screwed up. I think he's, man, I think he's in bad shape. you got to keep an eye on him. They don't want to do that. No. What's that, snitching or ra- Snitching, ratting, tattling. Ratting. Um, Writing them out. In fact, with our elementary school students, we have a, a program where children come up and hold posters, and one of them is telling is not tattling. So we have to tell the you know there's a difference between tattling because you want to get your get attention for yourself and your your you know or you want to be a, a sort of garner favoritism among a teacher, but telling when you're truly concerned about your friend who may be in trouble is a good thing. It's a positive okay. thing. Okay. And that's what, and, and we do talk a lot about what friendship is, what a good friend does for his or her friend and, and how you must intervene if you see your friends in trouble. And then we also tackle the bystander mentality. You shouldn't stand there and let someone verbally abuse or in the case of the shooter most recently physically abuse uh the boy in uh dixon illinois had his jaw broken by bullies 
and was sent home and got a gun. Fortunately, a teacher intervened and he did not kill anyone. Yeah. But these are real situations. and these It's just amazing to me. In the month of May, just about every week, there was a school shooting. Yeah. What was the... Um what was the shirt that the uh, kid in Santa Fe was wearing? What did it say? Born to Kill. Born to Kill. Okay. Now, you say bystanders. I assume they can be adults as well. Would you tell the audience that brief story of you and one of our sons, and you saw some T-shirts you didn't like, and he knew you were going to not be a bystander because you're not a bystander, and what happened? We were in a store... And this is when John was probably 12 or 13. It was a little store uh, down on the coast. And it was a T-shirt. And this, I guess he was probably 15. And I really can't tell you, because it was very vulgar, but it was doing something with the devil. Mm -hmm. And I just, I looked at that and I just could not help it. I said, that is just disgusting. That is the most disgusting thing I have seen. And he's walking around. This is a nice beach community. I mean, obviously, he had parents somewhere. Somebody let him out of the house with a truly vile shirt. And I looked and I said, why Why would you wear something like that? And he just looked at me and he actually did look embarrassed. And he sort of slunk away. He's still capable of embarrassment. Yeah. That's good. I mean, he was young enough. and uh, But John said, Mom, you can't do that to me. He said, I can take on one guy, two guys. He was with four other guys. <laughs> and he's three years older. This was before John had really, you know, developed yeah. into yeah. the uh, the pretty substantial guy he is. You know. Mother's pride speaking here. Yeah. I can join in that. Okay. No, but, but but let's come back because it's it's a great story. It's a great story about both of you because he was ready ready to to defend you and, and stand up for you. But 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 the point is about don't be bystanders. You weren't a bystander here. And is the first lady? And I want to come back to that as we close. Is the first lady? Well, first of all, have you connected with the first lady on this? Has uh, that connection occurred yet? Briefly, actually, uh, at the uh, first lady's luncheon last year. And I said, I have an anti-bullying program. I want to applaud what you're doing. And her face lit up, her eyes lit up, and she got ready to talk to me. And I was pulled away. She and she kept looking back. The photo line, right? You had to <laughs> right. Keep moving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The handlers. Welcome to Washington. Yeah. The handlers would just not allow us to talk. Well, you should connect because she's doing a good thing here, right? Well, she is. You're in sync. She is. And Be Best is a great slogan. And we have the Best Friends program. And we started it with for girls. And then we developed Best Men. We have our high school program, the leadership program, which is for Best Men and, and Diamond Girls, as we call our high school girls. But I think if we can only, if we could just have school assemblies at the beginning of the year, and that's why I'd really urge teachers and parents this summer, we don't have any time to waste. As soon as this group graduates, school officials need to go to the drawing boards. And when they come back in September, there should be a school-wide assembly, a school-wide anti-bullying, stop the silence, prevent the violence for high school, middle school and elementary. It's not cool to be mean. We're not going to tolerate mean behavior. We're not going to let it happen. And we're going to urge you to speak up. And here's how you can speak up. And here are hotline numbers. If you're too afraid. They're anonymous. They're anonymous hotline numbers. If you're too afraid, that's where schools should really look at themselves. The guidance counselor there should have her door or his door open. 
all the time. Okay. Till six o'clock, frankly. They don't need to walk out of that school at three thirty well, for kids to come because kids can't come during the school day. Sure. And they need to be available. In fact, we have evaluations from teachers and we, we read every word and I can't, I was surprised at the teachers who were anonymous, but they were honest enough to say, I know I need to be more available to my students. And I really would urge teachers who are listening to this podcast to take that to heart because teachers could make a huge difference. A teacher could have intervened sure. in every one of these shooter situations early on before the shooter became so in, intensely right. can't, angry. Can't say with 100% it would have prevented it, but it wouldn't have hurt, right? It could have prevented some. I truly believe it could have prevented. Okay. Okay. Well. 75%. Uh, just a couple of closing thoughts. Hope you and Mrs. Trump do connect. She can I use do too. your expertise. And, I do too. And I hope the school people talk to you because they need to hear what you're saying and they need to hear how to explain to students, make distinctions like telling is not tattling. Uh, because as soon as you say, if you see something, friends in trouble, you know, say something. Let me tell you why it's okay. Telling is not tattling. Uh, and just to close, if people are interested in learning more about the program, just tell us quickly what uh, where to go, what to do. Well, they could go on our website, uh, bestfriendsfoundation.org, and there's contact information there. There's There's guides, tips. We'd appreciate their visiting our website. You don't want to give out the home number, do you? No, let's not. I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> All right. Elaine, thank you very much, and congratulations on this. And, uh, you know, the First Lady should really link up. You and the First Lady should link up. Be a very potent combination. Thanks for your work. You know, I, I just one last thought from the philosopher here who's not as in close touch as you are. You know, you can talk about the externals, externalities, guns and metal detectors and armed guards and all that. But I remember a line from our friend Jim Billington, the former librarian of Congress, who was writing about this years ago. And he said, it's not the gun, it's the trigger in the mind. And that means you got into you got to get into a harder business, which is dealing with the minds of, uh, of young people, my, the minds and emotions and feelings of young people. And, um, and that's what you're doing. That's the hard work. And uh, we appreciate that work. Thank you. Well... Thank you, and thank you for all you've taught me through the years. Oh, good. That's public now. I appreciate that. Okay. Thank you. (laughs) That was Elaine Bennett, founder and president of the Best Friends Foundation and mother of my two sons. Well, that's just about it for this episode. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to BillBennettShow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett and like me on Facebook. Please like me. Don't unlike me. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and friends. We will catch up next week.